Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, obviously I am a substitute teacher today, and um, with that comes all of the joys, I'm sure, of substitute teachers. Uh, but my name's Jim. Um, I actually teach at Ozark Christian College. I'm the vice president of college relations over there. My primary role is to build connections with churches and uh, develop some leadership opportunities for us to train church leaders. Uh, so that's kind of my role there. Uh, I was a preaching minister for the past 10 years up in Illinois. And uh, did that from the time I graduated Ozark, uh, really up until just about two, three years ago when my family transitioned uh, back here to teach there. And uh, so it's good to be with you today. I've had opportunities to teach here uh, at the church, several different courses, and uh, looking forward to just volunteering. I told Scott Insminger, kind of my goal is just to be that kind of volunteer that is willing to say yes to him when he needs uh, when he needs someone to step in. And so uh, that's the reason we're here today. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. If you have your scriptures with you, uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And so I encourage you to turn over to that, and then we'll walk through today uh, chapters 4 through 7 and outline some stories there uh, that will really kind of be strung together th- through some similar themes. So let's pray, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening. Uh, I pray that uh, as we are here, God, that you will reveal yourself to us through your word and through your spirit. God, we come to stories that seem far removed from our experiences. And yet we recognize that through them, you desire to uh, reveal not only yourself, but also how we should respond to you. So I pray that that's true this evening through some of these stories that seem very foreign to us. And uh, we pray that through that we can look more like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, So this evening we do come to a a strange uh, part of 1 Samuel. It really is a seam in the narrative. So if it's a story, there's kind of this pause in the story and the scene changes. Uh, What I'm saying is this, if you've been following along, you've been hearing quite a bit about the person of Samuel or the character of Samuel. And and even recently, uh, going back to last week, your text from last week, at the end of chapter 3, we heard this in verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And so at the end of chapter 3, again, this revealing of God's word to Samuel. And you almost have to hit pause when you move into chapter 4, because we're going to put Samuel aside for a moment. And for the next several, several chapters, 4, 5, into 7, we're going we're gonna to leave Samuel, and we're going to start following the Ark of the Covenant. Um, how many of you have seen uh, Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark at some point in time? Okay, Perhaps you have. Um, I, I remember watching that as a child and fairly terrified at the possibilities of what might happen if you were to someday encounter the Ark of the Covenant, right? Flesh melting off of your face, some of those things. And, and in the same way that that, that story seems like a fantastic story, uh, our story today as we come to has some of those elements to it. I, I mean, there is, there, there is some uh, dynamics in this narrative that, that kind of play into that Hollywood rendition of the story. And, and so we're going to follow the Ark of the Covenant, this four-foot box covered in gold that had two cherubim, two angels on top that their wings touched. And 
in a strange sort of way, it symbolically represented a few things. Can, can I just list a few things that it represented? Uh, for the Israelites, it represented the presence of God, first and foremost. That, that is kind of almost a connection point of where God was going to reveal himself on earth. And so in that sense was a, a meeting place. And wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, was a place where the realm of God and the realm of man collided. There was a, a collision point there. And, and so that was unique. It was unique in the sense that it was not an idol. It was not a visual representation of the God that was worshipped. It was merely a representation of the fact that he is present. So that's number one. Number two is this. The Ark of the Covenant, um, the Ark represented God's covenantal promises. That God was a God who had promised Israel that he would be with them. That he would be present with them. So there's the layered nuance. Number one, I will be with you. Number two is I have covenanted, I have promised to be with you. And so inside of that Ark of the Covenant was first and foremost two of the tablets um, from Moses with the Ten Commandments. Now, it's a little bit debated uh, as to, uh, were all ten on both tablets? In other words, were these carbon copies of one another? So if a typical contract in the ancient world would have been like this, you make two copies and I take one and you take one. It's not so different today. So if these two tablets were the same copy put inside, they represented God's copy and the people of Israel's copy put inside the Ark of the Covenant. God had made a covenant with them, a promise with them, and he was going to keep that. Later on we discover that manna from the wilderness wanderings, the, the bread stuff called what is it? I've had food like that in the cafeteria. Um, you know, it's, it's what is it? Well, let's keep some of what is it to remember how faithful God was in the desert wanderings. Because God is a present God. He is a promising God. And he is with us in the midst of all of these journeys that we are on. And so that is there as well as a staff of errands that buds. And we see that even going into the book of Hebrews. And so this Ark of the Covenant, four-foot box, covered in gold, cherubim on top, wings touching, represented the presence and the promises of God. This box is at Shiloh. That's not used, where we're used to hearing about it. I mean, even growing up, I always think, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We're, we're not there yet. When the tabernacle, which is the tent that journeyed through the wilderness, from the place where they got the Ten Commandments, when the tabernacle finally got to the promised land, they were like, okay, let's like set up. We're not camping anymore. How many have been camping for far too long? We, we had a family vacation one time. We thought, it would be great. We've got three kids. One of them's a baby. We could camp for an entire week and save a lot of money. This is a great idea. We were so ready to get back home. So, I mean, it's this, this tabernacle of, of this tent city that finally settles on the promised land. Like, okay, we're tired of moving around. Let's settle the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, one place. Shiloh is that place. So it's been there. But there's going to be a conflict that takes place in our text today. And so, again, we come to chapter 4 in 1 Samuel. And, and one of the things we discover is that there is a battle. Now, in the text, um, there's a conflict in the text about who starts this battle. I don't know that it really matters. But the Israelites are camped at a place called Ebenezer. Um, that is a word you may want to hang on to. In our text today, our, there is going to be a frame okay, of this word, Ebenezer. It's not the same location. But it does matter. Because a war is going to start here in Ebenezer. There's going to be some consequences. And later on, there's going to be another place called Ebenezer that's going to kind of echo back to this moment. 
So I, I want to, as strange as that name is, I, I want to underline it and kind of just put it in our head and remember that. So the El- Israelites are camped at Ebenezer. The, the Philistines are camped at Aphek. And, and honestly, can I just give you a hint of reading names in the Old Testament? We don't know how sometimes the ancient Hebrew was pronounced anyhow. So just make it up sometimes and just read it through. Do the best you can. It'll be okay. And so the Philistines and the Israelites are about two miles apart from, from one another at this point. And, and they go to battle and the Israelites lose. 400 people. Okay, 400 men in this battle. And, and so they're panicking. Oh man, what are we going to do? I mean, the God has been faithful to them. He has always gone before them. You remember the city of Jericho? Do you remember that story? My kids know that story. And if you don't know the story, it's this promise that God is going to help his people take this impossible city. And they do it. And the Ark of the Covenant is part of the process. And they shout. And the city falls. And so they're like, oh, we failed. God's presence made, must not have been with us. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant at Shiloh. And so in this moment, here's what we see. And this is so vital to the text. We see the people of Israel start to see God as a God who can be manipulated. Not as a God to be subjected to be subjected to or obedient to, but as a God that we can kind of use for our own little purposes. Um, a good luck charm. Or you might call him an idol. And, and it's easy for us, easy for me, to go, wow, that's so foreign. Why would, why would this be a big deal? And it's important for us, I guess, at times to push pause on the text and go, huh, like, do I ever treat God that way? Like, only call on Him when I really need Him. You know, finances were going so well, and then the floor dropped out. And in our family's case, it's like the new house that we bought. They ended up being the money pit. I mean, we spent like 10 grand in the first year of things that just started happening when we bought a house. And we're like, the floor just dropped out. And, it's like, and all of a sudden, your prayer life changes. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant because we need the promising present God in that moment. And, and yet we have this context of disobedience that they're kind of just using God as this puppet God in this moment. So they get the Ark of the Covenant and in come with the Ark two of Eli's sons. Perhaps you remember them if you are here the last couple of weeks. Uh, these are the guys who are, there's no better way to put it, and quite frankly, Jason would be more brash than I ever would be. Um, but these two guys are sleeping around at the place where the temple is temporarily set up. So don't think Jerusalem temple, think temporary temple. And they're sleeping with people who are working in the temple. Okay, church corruption. And not only that, but as they make sacrifices, uh, they are eating God's portions of the sacrifices. So the fat portions was supposed to be a portion that was burnt and the aroma went up before God as a pleasing sacrifice. But they go, that's the best part, which that's not my favorite part. But that was their favorite part. And so, in fact, we see Eli in a little while. He's going to be talked about as overweight. It's possibly because of this that's going on. They are robbing God. And so God becomes kind of this token almost a, a flippant way to live life. And yes, we have God, but he's not really at the center. Can I, can I remind you that back as they were journeying through the wilderness, the way they set up camp, the way they set up camp as they journeyed through is in the middle of camp, they would set up the tabernacle. So if this is the tent and the, the Ark of the Covenant would be inside of that tent. And this was somewhat the courtyard. All of this is drapery and tapestry, mind you. If they would set this up, what they would do is they'd actually camp in a circle or in kind of a square structure 
uh, around this tabernacle. So all of the different tribes of Israel would be camped around this tabernacle. That communicated a few things. God is meant to be at the center of everything we do and all that we are. Furniture matters. We, we do similar things in culture as well today. We pick our houses based upon where they are in school systems and those types of things. What are the things we want to center our lives around? Do we choose a big city or a small town? How do we want to center our lives? The way that this group was taught to camp and live was to always put God at the center. And God has fallen out of the center even in their very lives. So we have this dynamic that's going on. The, the Eli's two sons come. They bring the, the, the Ark of the Covenant with them. And they go into battle again with the Philistines. This time they give a big shout. I want you to think that they're thinking just like Jericho. Okay? Alright, everyone get in. Everybody put your hands on. We're going to say one, two, three, go. We're going to shout. God's with us. Ready? Go. They shout and it's not the same story. It's not what they expected. And, and so we see in 1 Samuel, 30,000 men are lost. That's a devastating loss. And not only that, but the Ark of the Covenant is lost. That doesn't necessarily ring in our ears as a huge tragedy. What if I were to say the White House has been taken? Or if I were to say the Pentagon has been overrun? I mean, we have movies about those types of things, don't we? And, and one of the things that I find interesting is that one of the things that terrorists most, most often attack are the things that we have placed our security in. Can I, can I just kind of say 9-11, um, even I was a college student at Ozark at the time, and I was downstairs in the mission. I know exactly where I was. Many of you do as well. The two things that were chosen to be attacked, there were three, but the two that were attacked the center of our economics and the center of our national security. They, they knew where we as a culture had centered our security and they attacked those two things. And if the White House or whatever the other target was had been attacked, those three things. Notice that it wasn't like a religious building. They didn't steal anything from a church. That should be a commentary on our culture and on us at times. That we place our security in other things. And yet when this Ark of the Covenant is lost, it's a national tragedy. This is the lowest of the low point that this nation has been since they were slaves in Egypt. From the time that God had freed them out of Egypt and met with them on the mountain and promised to be with them. I will be with you. And, and promised to be um, their protector. This was the moment where they realized that that covenant was now in jeopardy. Not because of God, but because of them. If you remember the covenant, they promised to God that they would be faithful, and God promised to them that he would be faithful. They had broken their end of the bargain. If there's two of those matching commandments, theirs was broken. Which wasn't the first time. You remember what happened with the first set of Ten Commandments when Moses came down from the mountain? They were already worshiping another idol. And so the, the commandment was broken right there. And yet God is a forgiving God. And so he re-entered, he continued, and, and Moses went and pleaded with God that, that he would allow them to. So this ark is, is taken, the people are killed, and the two sons of Eli are killed in the process as well. If you were here the last few weeks, you recognize Samuel has already told Eli that that was going to happen. And so that's what sets the stage for this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Here's an interesting fact. Shiloh most likely was destroyed. Later on in the prophet Jeremiah, he talks to Jerusalem and he says, have you learned the lesson about Shiloh? And he's talking about them following after other gods. 
He's like, don't you realize that if God will let that happen at Shiloh, he'll let it happen to Jerusalem as well. And in 70 AD, it did. And the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so I, I want to trace, trace this and again bring it back home to go, okay, we are called. We are called to not take God's presence and his promise for granted as a people. Now, that presence and promise has shifted. It's no longer a geographical location. In fact, I, I think this is vital for us to recognize that throughout the New Testament, this idea of God's presence is linked. We start in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, and we have Adam and Eve. And is God present there? In fact, yes, He is. He is present there walking with them. And so we have God present in the Garden. And then we have other stories that would link this all the way through. But I want to just kind of move into Moses. And we have Moses and God working through the tabernacle. And then we have it set up, kind of skipping over our story momentarily. We have a little bit later David and his son Solomon. And you're going to get to him. And we're going to have the temple in Jerusalem. And God is going to be present there. And then the temple there is going to be destroyed. And we come later on with Jesus. And guess what the book of John says about Jesus? He came and he made his dwelling amongst us. Guess what the word dwelling is in John 1? It's this word. Jesus came and he camped with us. He tabernacled with us. And we have seen his glory. Hold on to that. Because this glory word is going to be our word for the rest of the evening this evening. So we have seen his glory amongst us. And in fact, Paul comes later on in 2 Corinthians and says, and we reflect that glory to the world. And so we come into the glory and we become part of this process of reflecting it. And then we come all the way down to the end to the book of Revelation, which most of us go, let's not touch that one today. And we come to Revelation 21 and it says, and in heaven, I will dwell with you. The word there is this word tabernacle. I will dwell with you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God forever. And with that, the glory of God is revealed. So what we're talking about today is something that God has always been doing throughout all of these generations and will always be doing. He is always a promising, present God, and we as a people have always struggled with what to do with him. And how to live faithfully with him. So this story is our story. So these two sons have have died. And and the the news of this comes to Eli in chapter 4 verse 12. Now this is one of those things that like I grew up in a really small church. And in youth group or in children's ministry. I'd be the typical kid tipping back in my chair. Right? Inevitably my Sunday school teacher. Bless her heart. She is foundational to uh, some of the things that I now know. But she would bring up this story and be like, you know what happened to Eli? Let's open up 1 Samuel and look what happened to Eli. Because Eli, the news comes, the runner comes from the battlefield. Which this is, this is all over the ancient world. Battles would happen, they'd have runners, young guys would run, and they'd tell the news of what happened on the battlefield. That is, by the way, also behind the word gospel. In this sense, it's not good news, it's bad news. Eli's there, he's tipping back in his chair. That He says, we've lost, here's how many people we've lost. We've lost your sons. But that's not what causes him to fall. It's almost like he expects it. He should. But then the news comes, but the ark has been lost to the Philistines. And he falls over in his chair. He's in his 90s. And he dies. 
it's kind of a humorous story in some ways. But for Israel, it's a national tragedy. I mean, this was a line of priestly family that is cut off. It's done. One of the things that your author in your book points out is that his weight may have been caused by um, this corrupt eating of the fat portions in the sacrifice. If, if that's the reason why this detail is added, that's an important factor to recognize. Not that, not that it was um, you know, just this added detail, but it was part of the whole corruption that was coming to an end. And so we have this death of Eli. And again, the tragedy there is that the ark has been taken. And then we have another story that's stacked on top of this. We have a death and we have a birth. So one of his son's wives, Phineas's wife, um, she's now a widow. Which makes sense. Her husband died in battle. She is, is pregnant and about ready to give birth. This news of the ark being lost, notice it's the ark being lost, causes her to go into labor. It's a difficult labor. She dies in the process. As the child is being born, um, then she gives the child the name Ichabod, which I don't know. I mean, I, I could make fun of the name, but there's probably like someone you know named Ichabod. You know, you don't want to go that route. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the story of Rebecca, Jacob's wife. When she dies, she names her son Benoni, which is son of my sorrows. And Jacob changes his name, Ben, Jamin, son of my right hand. There's a little bit of a narrative echo in that, if that's something you care about. Um, but Ichabod is, as best as we can tell, a name that means the glory has left us. It could also mean glory has gone into exile, which is the same idea. But exile is pretty important for Israel. Um, it, but the idea is this idea of um, her devastation over the ark being lost and that God has abandoned his people. I, I wonder if part of that is this mom wondering, how is my son going to grow up? In what kind of world will he live if the presence of God has left his people, how, how is he going? I mean, I asked that question about my three kids. I have, I have three kids, a nine-year-old daughter named Grace, a six-year-old son named Sawyer, we call him Sawyer the Destroyer, and a two-year-old daughter named Eleanor. And every now and again, I just go, I mean, I'm only 36, but I have seen so many things that go, where are we going? Where is this all going? And, and I wonder if part of the heartbeat is this. The, the, it seems like everything is dark. And I, I want to just kind of let that darkness sit because that's w- where they were. Is This is where all of this has led. This death of a dynasty of those who were to bring us into the presence of God. This exodus, this exile of the presence of God, but also this hopelessness, this dark drapery that has fallen on top of us. So we have these few things that are going. Um, The the assumption would be, by the way, that if the ark is taken, that the Philistines are probably going to come wipe the rest of us out. Because if we don't have the presence of God, we don't have the promises of God, and we can be overrun. So let's throw in the towel. 
So we have all this. So now what we need to do is as we look at this, we need to follow the ark. So we leave Israel behind, and now we follow the ark of the covenant into into Philistine territory, which this isn't very far away. This is like 30 miles away, really only about 5 miles away from some of the border towns between Israel and the Philistines. So we're not talking very far. We're talking like here to Carthage in some of this story. Okay, So the Ark of the Covenant is taken there, and they put it in the temple of one of their gods, Dagon. This is an interesting god, um, because he actually has roots that go back further than the Philistines. Okay, Philistines moved into this area around 1200 B.C., so if you're kind of thinking our time frame, think around 1000, that's kind of just a good framework to think, that's around the time that this is. Um, they had technological advances over Israel called iron, which would make an advantage. Um, and so they were, had been a thorn in the flesh of Israel for about 200 years. You've read about them. Some of you were in the book of Judges. And so this has been this constant clashing between these two groups. But they bring um, the, the conquered God. And I'm sure this was a little bit puzzling for them. Because normally a God is in the form of an idol. And this is a box. And it has stuff in it. And so they bring it in front of their God. And, and it's in his temple. And, I, and this would be an act of kind of just, I mean, a lot of ancient cultures just collect pagan gods and just kind of keep collecting them. And, but this was a, a god that had been conquered, and so let's put it before our god because he was obviously superior over them because we conquered them. So it would be a natural tendency for them. Um, and then the, the first night that he's there in this temple, um, the, the idol, their idol, falls down face forward and bows down before the Ark of the Covenant. So, I don't know what he looks like. Um, Dagon, Dagon is most likely a grain god, but I don't, we don't know what he looks like. Um, a lot of these gods were kind of like, I mean, it's really difficult because we don't have idols, but would be taken and syncretized and meshed together with different gods. My best analogy I can give you is when I go to Haiti, they have taken in Haiti uh, gods from voodoo, but also some of the Catholic saints and merged some of them and created new gods. And sometimes they have faces and sometimes they look like animals. And we don't know. This one seems to be in the um, image of a man and whatever that looks like. We don't know. No, this is, this is a figure. So made of metal. Sometimes it would be like wood overlaid with metal. It would be that type of a situation. So, so think... I mean, the best image we can think is Buddhist temple. Someone later on to discover the memorial to Abraham Lincoln. Okay, I mean, I'm just saying, like, those are the kinds of things that you need to think. You know, in Rome, they have pictures and uh, statues of the emperor. At first, they were not worshipped, but later they worshipped the emperor as a god. And so some of those were even venerated as idols to a represented god. and, And that being said, they... They even recognized there was a spiritual realm that this was representing. Okay, so this this ark in their mind was kind of that same way, and in some ways it was. It was a symbol for who God was, but in their minds, all of the gods we can have all of these symbols, and it's all okay because there are multiple gods. Every little tribe had their own little god. My friends who serve in Taiwan, that's not unusual for them. Every little city has its own little deity, and you would worship to it and make sacrifices to it. So does that help? So this idol is in this room, Ark of the Covenant is there, and he falls down face forward, day one. Coincidence? A little freaky? Probably read a few ghost stories, okay? 
And so they go, okay, let's put the idol back up. Something crazy is happening here, right? I just imagine some of the conversations going on. Day two, it happens again. However, this time they walk in and the statue that has fallen, his head has been decapitated and his arms have been cut off. His hands have been cut off. Now, for us, we go, okay, um, that, that really doesn't have a whole... I mean, it's funny that that happened, but it's not all that, all, all that big a deal. I want you to understand that in a normal battle in that, in that culture, um, to decapitate someone and cut their hands off was to take a trophy of war. So in some of the ancient documents we have from this, this period, um, they talk about um, wearing the wrists or the palms of people along, around a belt. I mean, it's points in war. And it's brutal. It's what it is. And obviously head counts has like a root meaning in something. It is head count. And, and so how do you keep track of fatalities in war? Those were some of the ways that they did that in this ancient culture, especially tribal wars that were happening. I mean, that's really what we're looking at here. Again, we're talking 30 miles apart. We're talking about tribal war. So, so here's this like... I'm thinking the exact same thing. Monty Python moment, right? So here, the irony, the, the funny thing about this, okay, I want you to take these two happenings, a small defeat and a disastrous defeat, day after day. And I want you to go back to the two battle scenes that we had originally between the Israelites and the Philistines. Day one, not the big deal, 400 people died. Let's go at it again. Day two, total devastation. There's a little bit of an echo and, and humor in this that God is going, yeah. You didn't really beat me. Um, and, and your God didn't really conquer me. So there's a little bit of panic going on at this point. Because something has happened with the ark. There's five major cities that make up the Philistine cities. All of them seem to have their own uh, king or lord. Again, think tribalism, okay, in that sense. Or maybe think Braveheart. And um, so each of these cities um, has their own ruler. So they're all having these conversations. What are we going to do? They start to ship the ark around to different cities. Everywhere the ark goes, people start getting sick. And, and, and historically, this has been um, kind of equated with something that's similar with the bubonic plague. So maybe it's lymph nodes that, that swell up and become tumors. Um, there, there is mice or rats that seem to be a part of this because of what we're going to see a little bit later with little gold um, idols of rats and mice being shipped back to Israel and little tumors, whatever that looked like, uh, being shipped back with the ark. So they start shipping this around to different cities and three different cities get a hold of this and finally like, they're like, we're done with this. Like, we can't handle this anymore. Let's, let's have an experiment. If this is really the God of Israel and, and if He is really upset with us because of what we've done, we cannot be like Egypt. Now, this is, this is important. Two times, these Philistines have understood Israel's history and Egypt and the Exodus better than the Israelites have. And in this case, they're saying, why should we harden our heart like Pharaoh? In other words, why should we keep letting these plagues happen to us before we send the people out of our country? Do you hear the echo of Egypt there? Okay, so, so let's send them out before this gets worse and like firstborns start dying here. And, and so we have this moment where the Philistines are better at Israel's history than Israel is, but is decent at Israel's history. And, and so this moment, they have this experiment. And this sounds like something like we, I mean, maybe we would do this. But we like test God in some ways like this. But these are the Philistines. Like Israelites shouldn't behave that way. We kind of expect it with the Philistines who, just by the nature of some of their religious beliefs, are very superstitious. In fact, the place where Dagon fell and he broke, they won't even step on the threshold there anymore. They're like... 
okay. And in fact, we have historical evidence that says almost every religion in the region started having a superstition about the threshold. They entered into the holy place for their little idol. And everyone's like, we're not stepping on that lest something happen to us. And so they get two cows. And I am not a farm kid. Okay? Like the closest I've been to a cow is I was looking at cows and I turned the other way and, and I remember I was like an eight-year-old kid. The cow licked the top of my head. And I was disgusted. I was like, done with cows, right? Other than eating cows, that's the closest I've been to a cow. And so they take these two cows. They have cows. And, and I don't know this from anything. But their theory is... We're going to point these two cows. They're going to carry a cart, pull a cart, and we're going to put the ark on it. We're going to put um, gold uh, symbols or uh, kind of a sacrifice. We're going to put five mice and five tumors on this and kind of a sacrifice. God, take this away from us. We're going to give you this. Um, And if the the cows walk toward Israel and not back toward their cows, then God has been doing this, and he has accepted this sacrifice or this exile, this sending back of the ark. So, I mean, you can imagine, like, really smart people putting their heads together. What are we going to do? Well, let's get some cows that should walk back to their calves, and let's just see if they walk in the wrong direction. And if it is, then it's their God. All right, let's do that. So, so they get all these people together, and this is what they do. They begin this process. And it's been seven months. Now, seven is rather interesting when you study the number seven throughout Scripture, but seven is kind of that complete number, and maybe in this it's like, we've had enough, we've had our fill, uh, it has been enough. And so they, they send these cows and they send them back. And of course they go back and they do go back to Israel. So we have this, this you know, is it God? And, and they're going, yes, it's God. And, and this, imagine being these people in Israel, they're out farming, out in their fields, and up walks these cows with a cart and a gold box on the back. What is going on? And so they bring this ark into this border city. Now, this border city is only about 15 miles away, or excuse me, about five miles away from where the ark had been previously. So again, we're not talking very far. And so they find this this cart and these cows. They have the ark, and they go ahead and set up a sacrifice right there. We've messed up on this before. Let's try to get it right here. But unfortunately, someone seems to get a little curious. We don't know all the details to this. I kind of wish that we did. And someone looks inside the box. I learned from Indiana Jones, you're not supposed to look inside the box, right? And 70 people are struck dead there. And sometimes we go, wow. Like, God, why? I've had people ask over the years of ministry, why does God seem like he's a God of wrath in the Old Testament and he's not a God of wrath in the New Testament? Does he change? And one of the things that that I want us to recognize is that there is a weight to sin even now. And yet the the place that that wrath is poured out on becomes, I don't want to call it a lightning rod, but let's just call it a cross. The wrath of God is just as severe against sin in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament. It's just that God has directed that wrath for sin to his son. And so this moment where Israel acts outside the covenant, they are still taking God for granted in this moment. They are still taking the glory of God, the presence of God for granted, and kind of just doing their own thing when God has covenanted with them and, and set up these parameters of how they are to approach him. And so again, they have this fear. And chapter 6, verse 20 is perhaps one of the verses that we need to underline in this entire section. Um, It is in that text 
that we read these words. Who is able to stand before the Lord? Who is able to stand before the Lord? And again, that becomes this thread that weaves its way throughout Scripture. So we have those who are humble and contrite in heart, and they are able to ascend the hill of the Lord or stand before God. Or we come to Romans, since, like, I don't know, on Sundays we're in Romans, and we come to a text that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this question is before us again. How, how can I stand before the presence of God? And, and yet it is in this text as well as in other places that we recognize that it is God who again reveals himself and he says, I am going to make a way for you to stand in my presence. So again, this, this border city in Israel wants to send the, the Ark of the Covenant away. So they send it 15 miles away, this time not to Shiloh. Uh, this time they send it further in. It's actually fairly close um, to Jerusalem, a little bit further to the north, uh, to the northeast. Um, But here's kind of the interesting thing about it. The only thing we know about this city is that at one point it had been a place, kind of a a central place, where the Canaanites had set up a high place to worship the pagan gods. And so are they basically saying, okay, we have a place of worship, it's the Canaanite place, let's bring it here and let's kind of just syncretize it with that. We, We don't know. But the ark lands there and it stays there for a long time. In fact, the next time we're going to see it is going to be when David's going to come get it in in 2 Samuel. David's going to come and he's going to take it, finally, to Jerusalem. And it's going to be set in the temple, eventually, when Solomon builds the temple. It's going to be put in the holy place. And at some point in Israel's history, it disappears. It could be when the Babylons come in, 586 and overthrow Jerusalem, and the temple is sacked. There are a number of places where it could disappear. But we have this repetitive cycle of the ark being taken, and Israel removing themselves from God's blessing. And we have this cycle of them rejecting God and rebelling from Him. So we want to follow this. Um, I want to turn over to chapter 2, and we'll come back to that. Chapter, or chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 2. Um, in chapter 7, verse 2... Um, we come to this place where the people are ready to, to recommit themselves. They're at a place of repentance. And so I want us to recognize this circle, this circle comes to kind of a complete circle. Where they're rejecting God and now they recognize that they need Him. And, and that really is, you, you follow that. If you were in the book of Judges with Jason, you follow that circle. And if you're following in this narrative, you're going to follow that circle again. So they come, and again, they're going to take the ark, and they're going to come, and they're going to present themselves, and Samuel is going to re-enter the picture. Remember how we pushed pause on Samuel. And Samuel's going to come in, and and he's going to say, hey, in verse 3, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods, your Ashtoreth, and your Baals. And it's important for us to recognize, okay, who are these two gods? Probably in ancient times, similar to kind of some cultures that we still have today, some of the most popular gods are gods that promise to make you prosperous. I mean, gods that promise to give you comfort and wealth and family and everything you ever wanted. Okay? So that's probably true of Dagon, the grain god, if he was a grain god. Um, that's true of these Canaanite gods, Baal and Ashereth. And so Baal, if, if he were to be a god that we were categorized, would be a god that promised that you'd have great wealth when it came to agricultural uh, life. 
And Ashereth would be a goddess who would promise you the fertility. And by that, I don't just mean lots of kids. I also mean lots of animals and all of the things that come along with that. We look at idols and we go, we don't have idols today. We don't have that problem today. And the, the difficulty is, is they just look different. We still want something that's going to make us comfortable. We still want something that's going to promise us that we're going to have wealth that we're going to be okay, that we have security. We still want those kinds of gods. In fact, one of my favorite authors who talks about this is Tim Keller, and he has a book I'd recommend to you called Counterfeit Gods. And he just says, here's the gods of our culture. And he just starts to list them out. And, and one of the, the interesting ones that, that you know, he starts to lay out, it's kind of like the 9-11 thing. He goes, hey, have you seen this and how we put our security in this? And what happens when that's gone? Do we have a panic moment? And, and what he calls us to as we walk through all of these things, one of them is children. Um, another book called Trophy Child is a good book about making our children our idols um, and placing our security in them. When it comes to the end of it, he says, you know, at times we need to come back to the place where we have recognized that we need the presence and the promise of God, and that's all we need. Like, we'll be okay. It reminds me of what Paul says when he says, I've learned the secret of being content no matter the circumstances. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That, that phrase, I remember being a kid and jumping on the trampoline thinking I could, like, I could quote that enough times and God would let me fly, right? Or I would play basketball in high school. I wanted to be Shaquille O'Neal. I had size 13 feet in eighth grade. And so I thought I was the next Shaquille O'Neal. I don't know why. And, um, and so I remember just thinking, man, if I can you know, just get tap into this. And it was very much a self-centered way of viewing God. And we look at us as 8th graders and we go, yes, what a foolish way to view God. But can I tell you, sometimes I still come back and Israel came back to this problem again and again. And I don't want us to be so foolish to think that it's not our problem at times as well. To come back and think, God, his job is to make me comfortable. God, his job is to make me happy. God, his job is to bring me glory. When he says, hey, I want you to pick up your cross. That doesn't exactly like scream comfort. And I want you to sacrifice, and it's going to be hard. And in this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have promised I've overcome the world. I want you to, to follow me. I want you to live in my presence, and, and I want you to be faithful to me. And so we have some of these same themes that pop up in our own life. And so Israel comes back, and they repent, and they get rid of their pagan gods. And Samuel sacrifices on their behalf. Notice they pour out water, which is somewhat symbolic of needing God to wash them. We have things like that as well when we are baptized and we go under the water. We are washed as well. We have similar symbols. The lamb is sacrificed. We have a lamb that was sacrificed. And this act of repentance that is in this moment, we have an ultimate act of repentance where we recognize that ultimately our sin is forgiven and we have a restored relationship with Christ. And that doesn't strike you as new, but I know that times we can take it for granted. Um, I, I was talking to Scott Ensminger before we started about a preacher when I was a kid uh, who came out to church camp in Colorado where I grew up. Uh, his name was Dave Stone. He teaches in, in Louisville, Kentucky still. Now he's old. He was probably, you know, really young back then. And, um, and so the whole phrase old is a moving target for me. The older I get, the older old gets. And um, I remember him telling a story of, of being at a, a skating rink, roller skating rink. And he tells a story that he started chasing a girl. He was in junior high. And he got going fast on these roller skates, faster than what he probably, like, had enough experience to be going. And he was trying to show off, and he realized at some point that he did not know how to stop on these roller skates. Some of you have been there, may, may have been a while ago, but I, I cannot skate. 
And so he, he, he realizes, I need to stop. So he does what every, I don't know, eighth grader or so decides they need to do in roller skating rink when they need to stop. I'm going to run into a wall, right? I'm just going to just flat pancake myself into a wall, and I will stop. And so he does, and as he comes up to the wall, he says there's this, and he doesn't see it until he comes right up upon it. I mean, he's like right there, and he sees this nail sticking out of the wall. And he says he comes up to this nail, it's like one of those moments and it's too late. And that nail goes all the way through his hand and he pushes off. And it's just instantaneous, it's just like that. And he tells the story and then he turns the corner and he says, You know, some of you responded as if that was more gruesome and more painful than the last time you took communion and heard the story of Christ dying on the cross for you. And first of all, I thought that was a little bit cruel for him to do that. Maybe a little bit of a cheap shot. But do you know that story stuck with me and has stuck with me for 15 years? I was taking communion one time and um, I had the little cup. And again, I was a preacher back then. And so I was standing at the back getting ready to make announcements. And uh, it's just a medium-sized church. And, but I'm going, I've just got done with my sermon. And so I'm thinking, oh, man, what do I need to announce? And communion is being served. And so I have this. And, and it's still being passed to everyone else. And I drop my note cards that had my announcements on them. And so I go down to pick them up. And I did one of those moments where I didn't, like, account for the, you know, the tilting of the cup. So I had one of those moments where I reached down to grab them. And the communion cup just spills out on the floor. And I didn't expect, like, lightning to happen in that moment. I mean, maybe after reading this text, I should have. But again, the wrath was on that, on that cross. And, and what I had recognized is that I had taken what Christ had done once again for granted. The same story from when I was in junior high that I had heard of me taking the cross for granted was the same story seven years ago as a preacher in Illinois. And can I tell you, it's still the same story from time to time. To where it's so easy for me to not only take for granted, but at times even neglect the privilege we have of the presence of God every day in our lives. We don't have to go to a tabernacle or a temple. The tabernacle, Paul teaches us, is now us. You are the temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And so we all become, and now when he says you, it's kind of like southern. It's like y'all, because it's plural. Okay? And, and so it's y'all. The Holy Spirit dwells in y'all. So we become little tabernacles that take the presence of God everywhere we go, to our workplaces, to our homes, to our families, to our cities, all over the world. We become the dwelling place of God. Do we at times take it for granted that God is with us? Yeah, we do. I do. And, and I guess the second danger beside taking it for granted is to go ahead and just neglect it and start living as if God is not present as we have seen Israel do in the midst of this cycle. So they come and they repent of this. And and they call again that they might be faithful to God. And this time as they're there, this time they've assembled in Mizpah. This is about five miles away from Jerusalem. This time as they're gathered there, the Philistines once again attack. So I, I want you to recognize God is a humorous God. Like, He loves teachable moments. He loves giving you second opportunities to learn a lesson. Aren't you thankful for that? Like, I've made mistakes, and then I come up on them again. I'm like, wait a second. I think I've seen this before. In fact, one of the things that, that I started doing, and this is, this is just something that kind of happened because of a friend of mine, but I started, and I started journaling. And it sounds like Dear Diary, but that's not what it was. Uh, but I started journaling in 2003 when I was in college. It was right before I got married. And I was like, i got to get myself put together because I'm going to get married. 
And so I just started writing out my prayers, because prayers are, praying's hard for me. And I just admit that, some of you, that might be true for you. Because I'm the kind of person, I'm very goal-oriented, task-oriented. So I can be praying, and then I'll be like, and I have 45 things I should be doing right now. One of the things the journal does for me is it helps me recognize, it's been a while since I've like intentionally sat down and recognized the presence of God. Just written out a prayer. It helps me stay focused on that. And I'm not saying it's something for everyone, but it's something for me. But, but one of the things that I'm able to recognize in that is that there are moments in time where I'm neglecting or taking for granted or just going through the motions of life. And, and not, but, but even in that, one of the things I love doing is at the end of the year, I go back and go, where have I gone? Like, what have, what's happened this year? And I remember some of the, the times early on, especially when I was doing this, and early on in ministry and early on as a dad, early on in marriage, I'd look back and I'd go, I learned quite a bit this year. And I'd come to a similar problem a year later, and I'd go, this isn't as big of a deal. Like, God brought me through that last time. It's going to be okay. It might even be a bigger deal. Like God is okay with us learning a second, or having a second chance and practicing what we have learned. And that's this moment. So the Philistines are attacking again in chapter 7. Notice who makes the noise this time. It's not Israel, right? It's not Israel in this moment. They're, they're kind of, I'm guessing, a little bit humbled by the, the previous experience. This time it's God who makes the noise. Chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. This time God brings a storm and God makes the noise and it throws the Philistines into utter chaos and there's this victorious moment that is there to be had. And so we have this moment that is there. So with that, with that, we also have this setting up. Samuel brings and he sets up a stone, which this happened, I mean, in the ancient world, especially Israel, there's all these memorials and stones set up and they're always named and you're like, I can't keep track of which one is which one and where is where. But Ebenezer, where they were defeated before, is, it's gone, it's in their past. And now they have this new moment where they have learned. And he calls it Ebenezer again. And this time, the, 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 the same words means the same thing. Stone of my help. This time, they recognized that they needed God's help in that moment. I hope you have some of those in your life. It can be relational. Where you've had relational struggles in the past. And you come to this place where you're like, God has helped me get to this place. Where we've got some things figured out now with his help. You come to that place in your discipleship, or maybe you come to that place in your finances, and it's because of God's help. Maybe you come to that place in your parenting. I have those moments every now and again where I'm like, oh, like I should have learned this a long time ago. But I'm glad God has been faithful in the process of this. And so we have this memorial that's set up to God, that God has been with us in the midst of all of this. And so I say that, recognizing that how you apply this text, it seems like such a, such a foreign text to us. And yet, it is one of those things that when we start to look at the dynamics, we go, oh, this is like sometimes me. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about glory, but what, what questions? I want to pause for a moment. Um, we, we walked through a lot of text, and we kind of retold the story. What questions or thoughts do you have? Any thoughts or questions? Let's talk briefly, and this is where I want to kind of land. We have about 10, 15 minutes, and we may get out a little earlier than what you normally do with Jason. I want to talk a little bit about this word glory. Because um, this is one of those words that, like, we say it, but sometimes we go, I'm not really sure what that means. And I'm the same way. Like, this is one of those words that's not a tangible word. It's not a word that you can put your hands around and hold on to and look at. So I want to look at this word and go, okay, what did this mean? The author that you have in your book, 
talks about the, one of the nuances, one of the, the meanings behind the Hebrew word for this is the word weighty or something that's heavy. And he's right in that. That glory describes the weightiness of something. That, that it's difficult to understand or comprehend. And that, that it's a burden. And, and that's a true nuance of this. So, so you know, if we're going to ask word study, that's one of the things that we could say. I, I want to ask story. And this is where I need some, some input for some of, from some of you. Where do we see glory in the biblical narrative, where does it pop up? Just kind of throw flannel graph stories up or maybe stories that you have heard or maybe you haven't. But let's throw some of those stories up. What are some stories that talk about God's glory? Let's start there. Any stories where you can think of God's glory? Yes, absolutely. One of them is the story of Moses, where Moses is say, saying to God, hey, reveal yourself to me, show your face to me. And God's going, no, no, you can't handle this. You can't see me in your current state of sin. It's too heavy for you. You can't bear it up. And so he says, I want you to hide yourself in a crack in the rocks. I'm going to pass by, and you're just going to see kind of like a shadow, a glimmer of me, and that's going to be enough. Okay? That's one of the stories. Okay? Another one of them, we've already mentioned the story, is of when Moses, again Moses, receives the Ten Commandments, and God's glory descends on the mountain, and there's like lightning, and God's like, hey, don't touch the mountain, you're going to die. That's this term glory, it's a weighty thing that when you have sin, you're not ready to take this in. Uh, Another one of these is when they're freed from Egypt, again Moses, and when they're freed from Egypt, God says, my glory is going to go in front of you, in the the pillar of fire, and the, the, maybe we've seen Prince of Egypt, in the cloud, and my glory is going to go in front of you, and it's going to lead you, okay? So we have these stories, here's what I want to say about glory. Glory, kind of like the ark, represents the fact that God is, again, with you. Okay? But it also is, God is great, or maybe you put the word holy there. He is, the word holy is he's different than you, set apart for, set apart is different. Uh, so he is set apart. So we have that idea as well. And then glory comes down on the temple as well. And it represents the fact after the temple is built in Jerusalem, that God is present in the temple. So it's kind of like God's endorsement in some instances. I'm with you, I'm present with you, but I'm in this moment. And there's a season in Israel's history where the glory has departed. Ichabod, okay, the glory has departed. One of the things that we find interesting in the New Testament is that we have the opportunity to reflect God's glory. So there's this weird text in 2 Corinthians. It's a crazy text. It's a weird text where he's referring back to Moses. He's referring back to Moses. When he comes out of the presence of God, his face is glowing. And he has to put this veil on it because it's freaking everyone out. Okay? And, and it's this weird text that says when, he, when he's in God's presence, something about him changes. And, and Paul is talking about this. And he says, guess what? That, that's, that's a story. It only happened with Moses, but it, it ended. I mean, it's just one story, one time, one place. But Paul says, it's kind of like what, what God is now doing with you today. You get to be in the presence of his spirit. And when you are able to be face to face with Jesus and be in his presence, you end up taking his glory out into the world and showing it to the world around you. And so glory in, this, in the Old Testament oftentimes is kind of like this powerful wow moment. 
that becomes a cloud or a flash of light. And in the New Testament, the glory of God becomes this thing that we end up taking around the world because of maybe it's the way the Spirit lives in us, fruit of the Spirit. And ultimately, it's because we look like Christ, that we bring Him glory. We bring Him, and and part of that weight is that we attribute to Him worth. That's what that weightiness is. We go, God has worth, and we're going to live our lives in such a way that we give Him value. And so that's, you know, this text where I say, okay, God's presence goes with us. God's promises go with us. The question comes, what do we do with those? Do we bring Him glory and praise, or do we take some of those things for granted and kind of continue the endless cycle that we have? Um, this, this is a great thing to trace even into the New Testament, even, or excuse me, even into the book of Revelation, where we recognize in the end of the time, this, this is going to be one of those things that we take with us to heaven. Like it, it talks about the idea that we take glory that we have attributed to God, and that's one of the ways that we worship, is we have given him value in the way that we live our lives. So I'm going to kind of wrap up, I'm going to pray, and then if we want to have a, a couple of discussions, if some of you want individual questions, I'll be up here to do that, and, uh, and then we will, I believe Jason will be back next week, and he'll be jumping into that next chapter. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this evening. I pray that, um, God, as we leave this place, um, God, many of these, these stories, again, that, that um, are so distant, not only in time, but in culture. Um, God, that this evening we can begin to ask the question, God, how do, I, how do I take for granted what Christ has done? God, are there moments to where, there, where we need to come before you and, and God reestablish the relationship and, and the priority of, of being with you and treasuring the fact that we can be with you? But God, also the responsibility that we who bear your name um, God, that we don't bear it lightly, that we don't take it for granted, that, that God, in the same way that I want my kids to, to take our last name and to live um, in, in a way that shows uh, glory for our family, that, that God, that we might live as your family and show glory to you. Uh, God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.